What's one thing you wish everybody knew? My name is Dexter Thomas, and I'm the producer and host of this podcast, which is presented by the Humanities Council here at Princeton. So this episode and the next one are going to be a little different. In the first two episodes this season, I've interviewed people at Princeton and beyond that, and more or less had them help me explain a little-known story from history, whether that was from 1920s Broadway or 1990s Liberia. I'm not going to do that this time, though. This time, the stories are coming from four Princeton students, and all of it's based on their research. Now, the topics are pretty different from one another, but I actually think they're connected. Based on the title of the episode, you might not believe me just yet, but stay with me and we'll see if I can convince you by the end. This episode is the first of two episodes in the series. In this one, one of the things we're going to talk about is the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot, and unfortunately, hyenas. But first, some drums. So the rhythm that um, Olivier started us off with learning is something called jansa, um, which is kind of like a joyful celebratory rhythm. Can you can you play one for me? Sure. The most um, common jansa accompaniment rhythm would be something like this on the djembe. Cool. Yeah, and just keep keep that vibe going. You just keep going. Yeah, you can layer a bunch of different things on top of each other. You can add some slaps and or some basses or whatever in between. So that was. Um, so I said drums, but we're talking about a specific kind of drum here, and what happens when you decide to write the rhythms of those drums down for future generations. My name is Ali Mingle. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, and I'm a senior graduating from the Comparative Literature Department. My thesis is about transcription of both oral and musical texts in the post-colonial Francophone Caribbean and West Africa. So in addition to being a beginner student in a drum called the djembe, Ali's also written a thesis that partially talks about a djembe textbook. We'll get to that book in just a moment. But Ali told me that if I really wanted to get what it was she was talking about in the thesis, I should watch this documentary called Djembe Fola, which focuses on a particular drummer named Mamadi Keita. In particular, she wanted me to watch this one scene. I had her walk me through it. So Mamadi is sitting in a classroom full of uh, probably around 30 to 50 students. Um, the majority of the students are white, um, which I guess makes sense. We think this is in Belgium. Um, and he's sitting in the middle of the room, and they're all sitting around him in a semicircle. Um, everybody has a djembe in front of them. Je vous ai montré les trois sons de djembe. He says, I've shown you the three sounds of the djembe. La claque, the tone, ton la the slap, basse. and the bass. Din, that is to say, dun, din, dun, and dum. Those are onomatopoeia. What Mamadi is doing is he's singing, or rather saying, what he wants the drum to sound like. So those articulations that he used to describe the tone slap and the bass, the ding, da, and thum, um, he's using those and saying a pattern that he wants his students to repeat back to him on the drum, uh, which might be hard to translate into musical sound if you maybe haven't studied with him before and know exactly what he means by that. Dun, 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 dun. Ta 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 ta, 
So the scene keeps going and as you can probably hear, one of his students is having a lot of trouble with it and she keeps getting it wrong. She eventually gets it right and the scene is it's sort of funny. But part of the reason that Ali wanted me to see this scene is because this is how she learned the djembe. She never met Mamadi directly, but her djembe teacher, whose name is Olivia Tarpaga, who's also the director of the African Music Ensemble at Princeton, he was one of Mamadi Keita's students. The reason Ali wanted to show me this was because you get to see Mamadi Keita trying to teach people. And to understand why that was so important for him, we should probably talk a little bit more about who Mamadi Keita was. So Mamadi Keita was a djembe fola or a master drummer from Guinea um, and he was born in 1950 but he died just last year in 2021. Mamadi when he was a boy, he tells us in um, the movie Djembe Fola, he tells us that he was drumming on everything. And so his parents took him to start studying with a, another djembe master. Um, and he was so good, essentially, by the age of 14, that he was summoned to the capital um, of Guinea to participate in the national ballet, or in French, the Ballets Africains, the uh, African ballets. Um, this was a ballet troupe that was founded um, around the time of the Ghanaian independence movement. Mamadi was summoned to be a part of this thing when he was only 14 years old. Um, and the, the ballets would kind of take all of the top musicians from all the different villages around Guinea and put them together, um, whether that's like musicians, dancers, artists, all sorts of different um, performers. Um, so he was part of this as a performer. Um, that group dissolved when the president of Guinea at the time, Sekoutoure, died. Um, and then Mamadi Keita shortly after um, moved to Brussels and started doing a lot of work um, with teaching the djembe to Western audiences in Europe. Mamadi stayed in this group for years. This was the thing that made him famous. But after the death of President Sekou Toure in 1984, Mamadi was a little more openly critical of the work that he'd been involved in. So Mamadi does mention um, quite often the ballets and the kinds of work that he was doing in the ballets. And um, from that, we can gather kind of like mixed sentiments, or at least I think they are mixed sentiments from the way that I read them. He never explicitly says that the ballets did anything wrong. Um, but one of the uh, main criticisms that he has of the ballets is the way they were using those rhythms. Like Mamadi Keita in his book makes a distinction between how, quote unquote, traditional Mande music, Mande being um, the people from this region in West Africa, um, would have been performed in the villages. Um, in places like Guinea, or also how it would be performed on stage in these national ballet productions. And in the villages, these rhythms that he's talking about, that he's playing on the djembe, would be accompanying dance, they would be accompanying singers, they're very much part of um, performances for different kinds of celebrations, initiation rites like circumcision, um, weddings, uh, all sorts of ceremonial and community events. Whereas in the ballets, these rhythms were being kind of taken as a kind of art music that you didn't necessarily have to perform in conjunction with these kinds of um, ceremonial or community settings. Uh, so it, it took it from something that people would be gathered around in a circle performing sort yeah. of for each other. And then it put everybody on a line on the stage in the way that we're used to going and seeing, you know, a concert. Right. Um, so that kind of turns this music that was once a form of participation. Everybody in the community gets involved, whether playing an instrument or clapping or singing or dancing, versus something that you watch. And it turns it more into something akin to a Western form of spectacle. And I say Western because often these ballets were touring in international places, representing the new nation of Guinea to international audiences, particularly European and white audiences. Um, so you end up with a, a situation where there's a European white audience watching a African form of music 
instead of a participatory musical setting like you would have in the villages. Uh, so kind of the vibe where here is our national art. We're going to show it to you European countries in a format that you'll understand. Yeah. And think that we're also capable of the same kind of culture that you're capable of. Exactly. Yeah. So let, let's let's back up a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You started out as a classically trained violinist. Yeah. What was what was the process of learning djembe? What was that like for you? Um, what is pretty unique in terms of how I learned to play the instrument is that Olivier taught us all orally. Um, so with violin or something like that, I would take a piece of sheet music and I would read the notation and play what's on it. Um, but in Olivier's class, he really taught us how to play without any kind of sheet music at all. So he would um, we would all sit in a circle in this music classroom, he would sit in the middle with his djembe and he would start teaching us a rhythm piece by piece. So he might tap out a certain pattern and then have us repeat it back, um, all the while instructing us about, you know, where to hit the djembe on your hand, um, the three different types of strokes or mm -hmm. the three different types of articulations, like Keita said, the tone slap and the bass, um, saying if you're hitting it with your left or your right hand, everything in the classroom was done orally slash sonically, which was definitely very different from how I'd learned music before. But not everyone would have the opportunity to learn directly from a student of Mamadi Keita's. Mamadi knew this, and he spent a lot of time not only teaching, but attempting to record everything he knew. Ali has been focusing on one particular book that was published a little over 20 years ago. So the text that I'm working with is Mamadi Keita's book called A Life for the Djembe, Traditional Rhythms of the Malinke. Um, and Mamadi Keita is from this Malinke ethnic group. The book itself is kind of a pedagogical text on how to play Malinke rhythms on a djembe, on a dundun, on some of the other traditional um, Mande instruments. And the idea is that if you read it, you'll gain a little bit of an introduction into the um, Malinke culture. Um, in West Africa, in Guinea, um, he places an emphasis on telling you about the culture as well as the music, kind of the ceremonies in which the music would be played in a village setting. Um, but he really emphasizes that of like, if your teacher isn't telling you these things, then get a different teacher, which I think is really funny. Um, he says that in the also, book. Essentially, yeah. I don't have the quote on me, but he says something to that effect. Wow. Or like there are <laughs> teachers in the West who like don't emphasize the the other components of the rhythms, not just the rhythms themselves, right? Um, and that he thinks aren't as good teachers. So he gives the name of a rhythm and gives a little bit of information about what context it would be played in, that kind of like community setting, like, like why would you play this rhythm in that community at a certain time of year or for a particular kind of celebration, that kind of thing. Um, and then the following page is a transcription. And that transcription bit is part of what Ali found interesting. As you heard Ali say, the way she learned and the way her teacher learned and the way Mamadi learned was orally. And the book does have a CD that goes along with it. But otherwise, everything is transcribed, sort of. It's a little hard to describe, but if you're familiar with reading sheet music, the method used in the book kind of looks a little like that, but it's not quite the same. They're lines and they're things that kind of look like notes, but for a student of Western music, it probably feels a little ambiguous. Ali says that she finds the fact that Mamadi was writing this down at all to be pretty interesting. And then what I find interesting about that is what happens when you're writing down something that changes, 
um, like in these instances. Um, Mamadi says that the traditional rhythms of the villages never change, but they do change. They evolve from person to person, and they're not the same exactly as they were 800 years ago. And so if you want to write something down in terms of um, one of Mamadi's goals with this book is um, to preserve it for future generations, right, in case those traditional forms of I hate using the word traditional so much. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> it's it's really way more complicated than traditional contemporary. And, like, I really hate falling into that cliche, but I can't think of a synonym. Um, That's interesting that you even bring that up, right? Because I think it's very common for a lot of us to pick almost any music that is not, quote, unquote, Western and saying, ah, yes, well, it's traditional. And it's it must have always been like that. Right. Right. And it must have never, ever changed. Uh, and And, of course, it will never change. Uh, because this is how they have always played it in their tribal setting right. or whatever, yeah. right? And I think we we all kind of get caught into that. And I think you can even see Mabadi in the documentary that, that you were talking about that, yeah, there's a right way to do it. But he's also, you can see him out there soloing yeah. and just <laughs> making stuff up. You can tell he's making up stuff and he's having a great time at it. And so it's not like, ah, yes, you, if you don't play it like this, then that's it, you know? Right, exactly. But it sounds like that's something you're really kind of grappling with in your thesis also. Yeah, is I guess grappling with what tradition has to do with identity. Um, and I, like the context particularly for my thesis is post-colonial identity um, because mm-hmm. post-colonial in places like Guinea, you gain independence and then there's a new nation and the foundation of that new nation and the identity like kind of like unification of that people under a new identity is often done through the arts. Um, that's what the ballets were for. Um, yeah. Essentially was a big part of why Touré nationalized them was to kind of present an image of what it means to be Ghanaian um, and doing so by using these quote unquote traditional um, Mende musics. So like this is um, a great music, like musical form that has come out of our people. We're going to showcase this and really promote it. Yeah. And it, it sounds like even though Mamadi spent, time participating in that process that he maybe had some second thoughts about the best way to do that yeah maybe kind of tradition is always inherently going to have those two kinds of tensions in it right um and this is something that you see in a lot of different contexts not not just mamadi keita not just mende traditional music um but the idea of tradition as something that links you to the past Mm. and that link being through like the idea of something unchanging right but also um, tradition has to adapt and evolve as the people that it represents also adapts and evolves, right? So tradition is something that's like kind of a component of a particular cultural identity, but that cultural identity is not something static, not something fixed um, because the people who identify with it also change. What I find interesting about this kind of problem of tradition, static, like unchanging versus evolution is how that interacts with writing and what the process of writing has to do in that transmission process Mm. um which means i I think writing is often in a lot of like western scholarship or like western literature even kind of imagined as this thing that's permanent you write something down that means it's going to last forever in the form that it is right Mm. or like you write a book and that is the version of the book and everybody's going to interact with it as the same words so writing kind of as this kind of fixing a process of fixing something in place fixing something in time um, I think that's a lot of times how writing is presented. It's not real until you write it down. Maybe. Yeah, some people might say that. 
one more component to this is that how that translates into like circle music, line music um, is, or like circle text, line text, is that a transcription has kind of two, there's like maybe we can boil it down to two ways of looking at a transcription in terms of how it interacts with sound. Um, and I talk about this in my thesis, but using the theory of prescriptive versus descriptive transcription. So descriptive is you're writing down a sound that already happened. And prescriptive, more like Western musical notation, is writing down how you want a sound to sound in the future. Um, so kind of performance to text or text to performance. And the right. interesting thing about something like Mamadi Keita's book is that it does both. It's taking a rhythm that's played in an oral slash sonic context, and it's turning it into a written object. But the point of the book is not just to read these notations and absorb it in your brain. Like you're not necessarily going to remember the exact patterns from the notation. The point is to take these notations, read them, and reproduce them on a djembe. But also in, in whatever context that you're doing it. Yeah. He's not asking you, hey, I want you to be a human iPod or tape recorder, right? right? He's yeah. saying, hey, listen, here is how this works. Here is the context behind it. When you play it, it's going to be pretty different, but I want you to understand what's happening here so that you can go forth and and participate in this. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Rather than just perform, participate. Participate. So it sounds like if I'm if I'm picking up what you're putting down, it sounds like a lot of this really is about you're you're trying to tell somebody who you are, but as you're doing that, you're still trying to nail that down yourself. That's maybe one way of thinking about it. Yeah. I can feel my mind being kind of <laughs> bent here, but I think I see where you're going with this. This is really interesting. It's cool. It also bends my brain a little bit. So. <laughs> um, I do not want people coming away from this thesis thinking that uh, I go hunt for Bigfoot on weekends because I do not. <laughs> there is no Bigfoot. He does not exist. Uh, right. But you know, it's still really important to examine the sort of stories that we tell ourselves about these kind of creatures, even knowing full well that they aren't, aren't real in, in a physical sense. Up next, what cryptids can teach us about ourselves. That's C-R-Y-P-T-I-D-S, cryptids. If that word doesn't ring a bell for you, don't feel bad. It didn't for me either at first. But fortunately, I've got just the person to get you up to speed. Uh, so my name is Lucy Ellen Deaver. Um, I'm an English major. My thesis work uh, has focused a lot on medieval bestiaries and, and medieval culture in general and how that interacts with cryptids in, in the modern sense. So what are the cryptids that people would be familiar with? So the the cryptids that I chose for my thesis, I tried to choose sort of the five mm, biggest players in this kind of space. So uh, chapter one is on the Mothman of West Virginia. Um, then there is the Jersey Devil, Bigfoot, um, the Loch Ness Monster, and El Chupacabra. Well, those are the the big players in the space. Yes. This is yes. very. This is fascinating the way that you describe this. It's like, you know, the dream team of cryptids. <laughs> Essentially, you know I mean? yes. So maybe let's start with one of those. Oh, I was reading through your thesis, and I thought that the Loch Ness monster was pretty interesting. 
about that one? Yeah, so the modern phenomenon of the Loch Ness Monster started in 1933 with a sighting of a very strange creature that that couldn't really be identified. And it immediately became a media sensation. Um, And you had just hundreds of reports flooding in about people who had seen the monster um, or what they believed to be the monster. A lot of times the monster was looked at as, as just that, as a monster, as something scary and unknown about like, oh my gosh, this terrifying dinosaur is going to eat me that, that lives in the lake. Um, you had newspapers hiring big game hunters. Like um, I think the Daily Mail hired this, this big game hunter and documentary filmmaker named Marmaduke Weatherell um, to... Wow. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic name. The fact and the name are both yeah, absolutely perfect. <laughs> yeah, so you you had just all of these investigations going. You had people um, taking photographs, and it created this explosion of tourism around Loch Ness, which was just absolutely great for the local economy in Inverness and and surrounding areas. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. But interestingly, even early on in these newspaper articles, you have the people who are are sort of the forerunners of cryptid culture taking this whole just very whimsically and just enjoying it. Um, there's a comic from 1934 that I, I love that's about the Loch Ness Monster becoming the mascot for a girls school (laughs) and just being like best friends with all the school girls. It's wonderful. It makes no sense, but it's so great. That phrase that Lucy just mentioned, cryptid culture, the culture part, that's part of what she studies. These are communities of people and a lot of it's online. There's sites, books, forums, podcasts that are dedicated to all sorts of creatures, which might sound weird because I don't know, who's a fan of Bigfoot? But it gets a little deeper than that. Actually, a lot deeper. What is what is cryptid culture when you use that phrase? So cryptid culture, as, as I define it, so these are people who don't necessarily believe in the factual existence of these creatures, but who are really interested in the folklore and the meaning and the experience of sharing these stories. It's not about finding, you know, a Bigfoot hair on a tree in the woods. It's about the experience of telling that story with your friends. It's about the enjoyment and the whimsicalness of these stories. So what is, what is the difference between cryptid and monster? Yes. So a cryptid in its most basic form, the definition is a creature that has been theorized or purported to exist that has not been proven to exist by mainstream science. Mm. Cryptids are also typically not based in religious practices like a sphinx. Like, why is that not a cryptid? Why is that a mythological creature? And it's because it's it's based in religious practices, even from, you know, a very old culture, um, you know, ancient Egypt, it still has its origins there. Cryptids are more the weird thing your uncle saw in the woods one time, <laughs> <laughs> if that makes any sense. 
It, okay, hold on. So somebody asks you, hey, what are you researching? What's your thesis on? You say cryptids. Oh, what's a cryptid? You know, that weird thing your uncle saw in the woods that time. You know that thing? That That's what I research. Is, is that how this conversation plays out? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Actually, at the beginning of the year, I was checking out um, basically all of the library's stock of books on cryptids. Um and the librarians laughed at me when I was checking out. <laughs> the library, yo, you know there's something wrong when the librarian laughs at you. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But you kept doing it. Yeah, I kept doing it. But, but thankfully, everyone has actually been really, really welcoming and really um, celebratory and excited about, about this work, um, which I am extremely grateful for. So, yes, at first, this might sound like a weird thing to study. But I think the reason that all of Lucy's professors and fellow students are excited about her work is because, kind of like you heard in the beginning, aside from this being fun, we can all kind of intuit that the stories we tell ourselves, even when those stories are obviously fake, are important, even if we can't quite put to words why they're important. But to really put that into perspective, you actually have to go back a lot further than the Loch Ness Monster to something called a bestiary. Think of it as a kind of book that in medieval Europe was the primary way of understanding the animal world around them. And people took these a lot more seriously and not always in a good way. So in short, um, bestiaries are a genre of medieval manuscript, um, which are collections of illustrations and descriptions of animals, um, some of which are fantastical, most of which are, are fairly mundane. But the way that they function is not so much as like what we would consider zoological um, descriptions. It, it's much more about the religious symbolism um, evoked mm. by each, each creature. Um, so they, they're really much more in line with with religious reflections than they are with like an encyclopedia of animals. Yeah, so what what kind of animals or beasts or would you see in these things? Um, well, they almost always start with the lion. Um, that is usually the first one. Really? Um, the lion? Why is that? Yeah. Um, so, you know how we say today that like the lion is the king of the jungle? Yes. That kind of thinking actually goes back to medieval and even pre-medieval um, thought. Um, so the lion is discussed in bestiaries as, as the king of beasts. Um, and he is a representative uh, of Christ and of both divine and earthly kingship. It is mostly how they're discussed um, in bestiaries. So as the king, it, it is the first entry usually. Is this an accurate photorealistic drawing? What, what do the lions look like? They're not photorealistic to our zoological concept of a lion. They are very odd, usually. And that, that is true for a lot of the bestiary images. A lot of times they will have almost human-like faces because they're not really sure what large cat faces look like or... Um, the proportions are off or the coloring is off. They have text um, describing the creature. Um, 
its its physical appearance appearances and some of its behaviors, whether these are real things in a zoological sense or whether they are projected onto the creature. Like, for example, the lion is one of the features of it supposedly is that it its cubs are born dead and then three days later by licking it, the, the cubs come back to life and are babies. So some of these okay. things yeah, I know. <laughs> they're um they're they're very odd from from a modern zoological standpoint, but it's mostly descriptions of these appearances and behaviors and then reflections on how those appearances and behaviors um, teach teach readers about um, the sort of Christian view of the world. So it, it kind of functions as information about an animal, but also moral moral lessons. Is that what you're saying? Essentially, yeah. It, it, it's a lot about the sort of almost cosmology of the medieval mindset. Like the just the fact that lions, their cubs supposedly come back to life after three days is um, a very obvious parallel of of the resurrection of Christ. Right. Um, and so just the fact that that exists is is a validation of the resurrection of Christ. And it's this mm. validation that the world is created in this in this Christological sense. But the bestiaries also had a dark side. And this is where another animal comes in, the hyena. So essentially the main trait of the bestiary hyena is that it is sort of dual sexed. It is described as switching between biological masculinity and biological femininity. Mm -hmm. Most of the illustrations uh, or images in the bestiaries will depict both sets of, of sex organs on the hyena. I see. And and what what does all this represent? So that that dual sexed nature is unfortunately um one of the incredibly problematic aspects of of reading medieval bestiaries because that nature of the hyena was used in the medieval period as an anti Semitic um caricature and an anti Semitic um tool for perpetuating um, the discrimination against and often massacre of of Jewish people. The medieval creators of these bestiaries viewed that mutability in terms of, of biological sex as an indicator of duplicity um, and faithlessness, which they also um, ascribe to Jewish people and the old anti-Semitic um, view of, of of Jews as as Christ killers, um, as, as ones who were once faithful to God and then turned away. Um, of course, that is you know a, a horrific, horrific view. Um, but it is it is true that that is how the this entry in the bestiary was used. Yeah, and this probably goes without saying, but the the logic there, and I mean, this is one of the things that, that really hits me when I read your thesis, is that it it's difficult to understand how truly seriously people took these kind of connections. I mean, one of the reasons it's difficult to understand that connection is because it's pretty nonsensical. Mm. Um, but essentially... 
the structure of the medieval bestiary is such that each animal is given a symbolism to connect it to the wider world. So, Mm. for example, as we were discussing, the lion represents both earthly and divine kingship. So the lion is is then transferred onto kings. Um, So that the tradition of connecting these creatures to people is already well established within the bestiary tradition. Um, And so when you get to the hyena, you get a, a very negatively viewed animal um, with these characteristics that are just incredibly demonized. Um, and then as that is transferred onto a group of people who are also dehumanized and demonized within, within this broader Christian society. Um, so that, that's really how you get that connection. Um, it's just continuing this tradition of transferring this animal symbolism onto people within society right so then this takes us back to the community of people that you're interested in the the modern fans of cryptids right so with bestiaries people genuinely believed what they were reading the fans of the cryptids though the the cryptid culture people know that this stuff is not real how or why build a culture around something that you know is fake So this ties in with really what is the sort of main force behind my thesis, which is the sort of constituents of cryptid culture um, are largely members of of marginalized communities. Just, I mean, there's not been really much academic work done on this subject, as you can imagine, but in my personal experience of being involved in this community for years now, the vast majority of people in cryptid culture are in some kind of marginalized community themselves, which usually will be um, the queer community, the neurodivergent community, or the disabled community. Really? Um, yeah. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so that was really the sort of big push behind the question of my thesis is, is why why are these stories so important to these people specifically? Mm-hmm. Um and I have, have found through, through my work that it really comes down to sort of mutual exclusion, if that makes sense. So cryptids in general are these weird, monstrous things that kind of get shoved to the side by mainstream society. They're just the weird things in the corner that nobody knows what to do with. And sort of that are viewed as these scary things that could hurt you. Um, Whereas cryptid culture's take on cryptids is usually 99% of the time that, oh, they're not scary. They're just, they're just friends. They're just kind of weird. Like, like the Mothman, for example, is, is described in the, in the 1966 sightings as this terrifying red eyed thing that is flying at this car full of people. It's just horrifying and then you get into cryptid culture and every depiction is just like, oh my gosh, he's so cool. He was just trying to like warn them of danger. He's just the best. Um, and actually really portray him as this kindly character. Just misunderstood. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, and that is a way that that's a sentiment that I think a lot of people in those sort of marginalized communities can relate to. I, I do consider myself to be a part of the neurodivergent community. You know, I talk about in my thesis how a lot of a lot of horror movies like um, 
like split, for example, take things like neurodivergence or mental illness or or disability or whatever and, and demonize them and turn them into these fearful and horrifying things so that a lot of times people in this community sort of, you know, obviously wrongly um, feel like, like monsters. Um, and so these cryptids as, as misunderstood things become something that you can relate to and become something that is very meaningful to you. So this brings me back to your thesis then, because you spend a lot of time talking about the function that the bestiary plays in history. But this all sounds really different from what you're talking about when you talk about cryptid culture. So how do those two connect for you? So the important thing to remember about that is that medieval bestiaries are, by definition, a mainstream media. Bestiaries were the most popular genre of, of medieval manuscript that we have. Um, so, of course, they are not going to present this narrative of being misunderstood. They're going to, to do the misunderstanding right. um, because they are just the absolute representative of, of the societal norms at the time and of, of the mainstream perspective on these things. Essentially telling people... Here is how you should understand the world around you. Yes, yeah, the, absolutely. They're they're very prescriptive, as you were saying, for for how you should understand the world and how you should see each of these creatures and what they should mean to you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the hyena is not something that you're supposed to identify with in a medieval bestiary. It's supposed to be something that you hate. Right. Um, and thus, you should also hate these people who we course, identify yes. the hyenas with. Yes, unfortunately. Yeesh. Yeah. Um. So. The, the thing that they do that is similar is is sim explaining the symbolic significance of animals to people, but they are doing that from very different perspectives. Um, medieval bestiaries are doing that, of course, from a medieval perspective, like not even to get into the time difference, but um, they're doing that from a very mainstream societal norm perspective, whereas contemporary cryptid culture is very much doing that from the opposite, like marginalized, underrepresented niche community um that is actively sort of working against the mainstream perception you know you know what else this reminds me of is um you familiar with wicked yes so wicked of course being the the book and then the play about the wicked witch of the west in the wizard of oz and then wicked is an alternate retelling which just explains that actually the Wicked Witch of the West was not wicked. She was just extremely misunderstood. And everything you heard about Dorothy, Dorothy's actually the bad person. And all this was a big misunderstanding. There's something in that identifying with the misunderstood that appeals to everybody. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, these are all narratives of, of people being judged as evil and creatures as well based on a single characteristic whether that's physical or related to your neurotypicality or neurodivergence or um, your sexuality or wh whatever you know it's all all of these beings being judged for a single characteristic and just shoved in a box that says evil and to be left alone right um which is exactly what happens to to Elphaba, the Wicked Witch of the West, in Wicked. Um, so what all of these stories are about and what Wicked is also about 
is about literally like unpacking that box and to say, okay, no, that label's wrong. That was just decided on by society kind of arbitrarily. That's actually almost exactly what I have found through, through researching this. You know, it's just that people see these things that have been kind of just viewed in a certain light that isn't always favorable. Um, and they, they latch onto it, like you were saying, and just say, no, I'm reclaiming this. This is a good thing. This is something that represents me. And I am claiming this as, as my own to love because you didn't. And there it is. Two different areas of research from two different student scholars that tell two very different stories. But I feel like they're both connected somehow. The one we just heard was about the meaning of the communities we create, even when they're centered around something that we know doesn't exist. And when we create those communities, what messages we're sending ourselves. The other one is about how hard it is to accurately write a rhythm down and what kind of messages we're sending to people in the future and to ourselves right here in the present when we try to. But that's just the connections that I see. Maybe you see something else. Anyway. This is where we get to the part where I ask the guests the question that's in the title of this podcast. I started with Ali. So this difficulty that you're describing here about writing and, and tradition, what if what if everybody, when, when they listen to music or anything like that, what if everybody had that in mind? That's a really deep question. I guess that's the point of the podcast, right? But if everybody knew about these relationships between language and music and music and identity and identity and nation and nation and culture, I think there's a lot of things that we could gain from that. Um, we were talking about how there's like this tendency to view things like traditional music as, oh, it's unchanging and like tribal and primitive and all these sorts of um, assumptions that you've seen get thrown around, especially in like 1960s ethnomusicological texts um, with white researchers going to Africa and like whatever. There's more similarities between us than we often think. Recognizing the more nuances that go into what a music is, what a language is, how it's been used and appropriated in the past by different peoples, and how people are using it now as a product for the present and how to define ourselves for the future. Um, I think that those kinds of considerations really push us to view each other um, more completely, more um, as equals, which I think is something that everybody could stand to do. If everybody knew how much these stories of cryptids say about the people telling them and hearing them and interacting with them, um, how much that really matters, um, it would make understanding and communicating with each other immensely easier. Because um, these really just do have, have so much significance and they say so much about the person um, who, who is identifying with, with them. Um, and of course, you know, understanding it, each other and, and misunderstanding each other is sort of the, the root of, of communication and, and miscommunication within, in society, which, you know, so many of our problems are caused by miscommunication and misunderstanding of each other. Um, so, Things like this, well, obviously this is like a very small part of one thing, but
but just recognizing the importance of those small, little, seemingly frivolous things can really, really help everyone to, to just more fully understand each other and what experiences we are bringing to the table. Once again, today's guests were Ali Mangle, who graduated this year with a degree in comparative literature and a certificate in humanistic studies, one of the Humanities Council's academic programs, and Lucy Ellen Deaver, who's also from the class of 2022 and majored in English and earned a Humanities Council certificate in medieval studies, which is another program within the council. And just another connection, both students also earned certificates in music performance. And this episode was based on their work and their senior theses, so it would not have been possible without them. That being said, the framing and editorializing and everything else in this episode, that's my own. So if you're curious to know more, you should definitely go to the source and please check out the show notes at humanities.princeton.edu slash podcast. You can find a full transcript there, plus links to the books, documentaries, and everything else we referenced in here. And like I said, the next episode is part two. It's a continuation of this one. In that one, we'll hear about Serbian internet slang and one student's experience in a hospital. I promise it'll all make sense when you hear it. If Everybody Knew is produced with music composed by and hosted by me, Dexter Thomas. See y'all next time. If Everybody Knew is brought to you by the Humanities Council at Princeton University. Our mission is to nurture the humanities locally and globally, engage diverse perspectives past and present, and enrich public dialogue with humanistic approaches. For information about our programs and events, please visit our website at humanities.princeton.edu.